0: Lord Jesus, in the hearing of your word, we ask that you would reveal yourself so that we, in our turn, follow you. Amen. Well, I wonder what you will be doing this time tomorrow. During Lent, we'll be bringing back that kind of idea that we uh, tried out some while ago, Discovering what, uh, uh, as one another, we we get up to when we're not in church on a Sunday. But today, I wonder what that's going to be for you. Work, family life, school, university, sleep, uh, maybe you're on shift work, maybe you're at the gym on a day off or at half term. But Jesus and Simon, in the story we've just heard, meet each other, not in their uh, Sunday best, as it were, But on a working day, Jesus interrupts and invades Simon's working world. I wonder what uh, what would happen if he did the same for you. There are certainly no layers around this working day with which Simon can protect himself. Perhaps why the change in him that we see is so wholehearted. Well, let's trace what happens through uh, the word and the wonder and the worship and the walking. Uh, casually, almost, Luke slips into uh, verse 1 into his account that what the crowd was listening to was the word of God. Hasn't said it before, but now he does. Jesus has said he's going to be preaching and teaching, but this is the first time that Luke makes it clear to us, to to hear Jesus teach is to hear from God himself, to hear the word from God himself. The stakes are suddenly very high. Whatever is going to happen in this story is going to be because the word from God has been heard. And then in the the moments of this story, as they unroll, and it is almost as though Luke unrolls them for us, we pass from the word to the wonder. Simon and his friends, uh, and his, uh, uh, his brother, we assume his brother was with him, Andrew, though he's not mentioned in the story, they would have been fishing with nets that were made of linen, not the kind of fine line net material that we know. And linen nets are perfectly visible to fish during the day. It's why they never fished during the day. They fished at night, so that the fish couldn't see the net. Simon knows his job. You don't fish the Sea of Galilee in the daytime. And they had already had a hard night's fishing without any luck. Well, this is the first in a uh, short group of three stories in which Jesus knows more than the experts do. Here in this story, uh, he knows that there are fish to be found uh, in a certain place out out in the deep. In the next story that comes along, uh, he will heal a leper and say, now I want you to go to show yourself to the priests, because the priests are the people that know everything about leprosy. They know who's clean, who's not clean. They can make the judgment. But again, he's the one who actually heals the guy. He knows much more than the priests do. Then we'll have the story of Levi, the tax collector, with whom the Pharisees were deeply upset uh, because they knew uh, who was in and who was out. And this guy, Jesus outrageously walks into uh, Levi's life and says that Levi is in. In every case, what is going on in those three stories is that someone meets the overwhelming and generous abundance of God. In a situation where humanly very little can be expected there is provision. Simon and his friends catch nothing at night, but now they're overwhelmed, and the boats, uh, theirs and James and John's, are nearly sinking with fish. (coughs) The wonder. And it's all too much for Simon. He reacts entirely unexpectedly for those who are reading the story, because what we've heard is a really nice story, isn't it? Uh... Jesus walks into Simon's life and says, ta-da, fish. So Simon's going to go, oh, goody, at lots of lovely fish for me to sell. He doesn't. The reaction's entirely the reverse. And it's part of the point of this whole story, isn't it? Surely many of us have urged family and friends to consider Christ. And we meet a reaction that runs something like this. Well, I hear what you say, and I know it's really important for you. And if and when God does something really nice for me, then I'll believe him, because then it will be easy to follow. And what Simon's story shows is the exact opposite of that is true for humankind, When we encounter the living God in all his glory, the distinctive reaction is not, oh, how wonderful I must be with God, but an overwhelming sense of our own unworthiness that falls away from God. The text says, amazement seized him. So much so that Jesus has to say, don't be afraid, like the angels always have to say when they appear in Scripture. It's very much like the appearance in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, the prophet, the man of God, says, woe to me, I am ruined, I am falling apart, I am dumb, because I have seen the Lord. That is, in fact, the typical reaction. There is no sense of, oh, isn't that, isn't that going to be lovely from now on? And so Simon says, go away from me, sir. And that's how we know he's having an authentic experience. He's experiencing the overwhelming gap between God's goodness and our sinful nature. I'm a sinful man. And he falls at Jesus' feet in holy worship. Then comes Jesus' commission. Don't be afraid. He restores him. From now on, you'll be catching people. He commissions him. So they pull up the boats, they leave everything, and they walk after Jesus. The work, the wonder, the worship, and the walking. Well, that theme of leaving everything is not incidental. Go to verse 28, outside what we had uh, today. What does Levi do when Jesus calls him? He gets up, he leaves everything. Well, what is it that they leave behind? In Luke's Gospel, it's, n- it's nearly always, uh, it's always, it is always some form of security, and it's nearly always money, or the means of making money, uh, or two great boatloads of fish that represented a lot of money. Precisely because God, in Luke's Gospel, is this God of abundant, generous, loving provision, they can detach themselves from the pernickety little systems that keep them going, and they can throw themselves into the adventure of walking after Jesus. Those pernickety little systems, they're the ones that keep people uh, at the wrong side of a border. You're in, you're not in. You're a leper, so you're unclean. You're a tax collector, so you're not one of us. Jesus insists, throw open the doors of the kingdom because the king is here. Exclusion becomes inclusion, and penny-pinching becomes Provision. It's an amazing story, and its placing makes it really important. We've had, just just flick back literally the page to 1030, 1031. So we've had the early days, then we get the the family tree of Jesus, the end of chapter 3, chapter 4. The temptation, his rejection in his own hometown of Nazareth, a couple of local miracles, and then chapter 5 opens one day. And you sense from that one day that something really important is going on. And what is going on in the calling of these first disciples? What might that be that's so important in this one day. Well, it could be that last thing. They left everything. And that is always a puzzle for a preacher. What to do with it? See, it's not that difficult to throw at a congregation the question Have you left everything to follow Jesus? Have you really left everything? Have you left the career that you would otherwise be about on Monday morning? Have you walked away from your family obligations and trusted God with them? Have you taken to the streets to follow Jesus? No, of course you haven't, and neither have I. I follow Jesus. But I haven't walked away from everything else to do it. And it's certainly not because I'm an ordained minister. Please don't ever suppose that that's special. It's just a job. And God forbid that we ever assume that means any kind of automatic discipleship. On the contrary, I reckon that my own everything else from which I might walk away actually already bears the marks of God's generosity, family, money, and you probably think the same. And so there is in truth still a little niggle in the back of my mind. The whole world of Luke's gospel involves a day-by-day reliance upon this extraordinary providing God. And I've got a long way to go before I can say I know him in all his provision. I know that every day I'm laying open to the possibility of fear, and to the daily unbelief that God will provide. I know I can look back and say that he has done, and he does. And please, God, I get better at that faith and trusting him. But Luke's gospel tells me how far I have to travel, and maybe it's the same for you, how far you have to travel towards an understanding of an overwhelming, astonishing generosity that trusts God and throws... Throws us into a generous lifestyle by instinct, no penny pinching, no tight lipped, tight wadded anxiety. So I don't think whatever is going on is quite that. It might be leaving everything. But while that may be normal, I don't think it's at the heart of it. It's something else. I don't think it would be difficult to work up a model that says, in a very neat way, well, this is the beginning of Jesus' program. He's out there now. It's one day. It's recorded for us. This is when he's kind of going for it. It's the big picture. And we find that the word that Jesus speaks and the wonder that Jesus produces makes for a worship that Simon offers. They do here. And I suspect there is something typical going on. It's not Jesus' first encounter with Simon in chapter 4. He's already healed Simon's mother-in-law. But Simon had been washing his net while Jesus was speaking and no doubt was listening to what Jesus said. So he listened to the word and he experienced the wonder and it is turned to a recognition that he is a sinner and that Jesus carries about in the mark of a holy and sinless God, and there is something right about that—that that worship that turns into a walking after Jesus. But already it's problematic, isn't it? Because Jesus, because Simon gets a word and a wonder, I got a word. I didn't get a wonder. There may have been a few wonders along the way, but they're pretty small beer compared to what Simon has. And for most of us, that is true. Not many of us have had two two fishing boats full of fish to tell us the wonder that Christ represents. And yet, imagine how life might have worked out for Simon. Because uh, Simon might later himself say, As he's talking to those who, he he wants to invite them into Jesus' kingdom. He might say to them, listen, I want you to know what Jesus did for me. And Simon might then get the answer, that's very nice for you, Simon, but he hasn't done it for me. And we know from the book of the Acts that there are times when Simon says, hmm, okay, well we better do something about that, here's a wonder for you. But there will have been other times as it was true for Jesus too, when others did not get the wonder. For most of the history of the church, the issue is whether people will believe the witness of others to something that happened, whether it's a single working day miracle or the one great miracle of arising from the dead when dead people don't rise. In truth, whether we get a fish or a bonus or some other provision from god it's always going to depend on whether or not jesus rose from the dead finally and i wasn't there and actually simon wasn't there and john and james weren't there they all depended on witness of others so there's no point in me saying well I can't do what Simon did because I only got the word. I didn't get the wonder. For most of history, that's been true, and it was true for Simon of the one great miracle. Well, there is something there, then, of word and wonder producing worship, so that even if it's translated now for me, it's word and witness to wonder producing worship. But it still bugged me. What is this story fundamentally about? Why is it here where it is? Why does it open with this one day? In the original, it's, it's and it came to pass. And, and something's mattering when it says, and it came to pass. It's so clearly a typical, programmatic account. But it seemed really hard to pick on what was the one thing that makes it normal, the one thing that connects Simon to me as a follower of Jesus, and then I found it, what unlocked the passage for me. The most important verse in this passage is not, I think, in this passage. It's actually in the end of the previous section. Jesus has had a remarkable reaction to his healings in his own local area, and he goes away to pray alone. But the people pursue him to keep the wonder worker uh, among them. And he says, chapter 4 and uh, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. And we know what should happen after that. What we should hear of then is a healing in Bethsaida, a sermon in Capernaum, an exorcism in Tiberias. That's what should happen. If Jesus follows through on what he says, I must preach the good news. So what seems to me extraordinary, and yet in hindsight oh so typical, is that the very first thing Jesus does after he says, I must preach, is to gather a team who will leave everything and follow him. God comes to earth, And what does God come to earth do? He gathers a team. I find that astonishing. You're God. You don't need a team. And Jesus says, yes, I do. Not because I need them, but because that's who I am. God comes to earth and invites you and me, who from this story are manifest sinners and far from him, to join his team, to participate in what he himself is doing, who uh, will leave everything as Jesus himself has left heaven and follow a different path. The privilege of that is... It's simply extraordinary, isn't it? That the almighty God of heaven and earth should come to to his planet in the person of his son to to do a work and in the process say, I want to do it with you. The privilege of that. But there's also the participation of it. We don't get to sit on the sidelines We only have the option of participating. Jesus never says, "Um, uh, I've got three of you uh, to deal with in my surgery today. Um, Two of you, okay, let's fix you. Uh, One of you, I'll fix you, but I want you to follow me. The other two, don't bother. You don't need to follow me. Here's a nice miracle. Never does it. If this God is to provide, if this God is to be abundant, if this God is to be loving, it will overflow. And when it overflows, it never leaves you not following. So when we meet Jesus, God forgive us if we say, Lord Jesus, thank you so much that you have said to me, when I've recognized I'm a sinner, thank you so much that you have said to me, don't be afraid. And thank you that you've said to me, I don't really have to go fishing. I'm going to leave it to someone else. God forgive us if we say, I don't have to be afraid and I don't have to go fishing. Reconciliation without service, if this story is typical, if this story is programmatic, reconciliation without service is simply not possible. And certainly not satisfying. The call is to fish. And on whom does the call to fish come? To all who are sinners. Who know that they can say, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And I want to to finish on this note, because this is what's unlocked it for me. That, That simple astonishment that God, who could have acted so differently, chooses because it's always going to roll on for the rest of history until he draws the line under history, chooses from the beginning to gather those who will be with him, leave everything, and follow him to catch others. If the preacher stands before you on a Sunday and says, your call is to go and catch people, is that to you an obligation? Is that to you a burden? Is that to you, oh God, it's Sunday and they're going on about evangelism again? What is wrong with us that it seems to us like burden? The almighty God of heaven and earth comes to his people, speaks his word, works his wonders, and invites us to a risky, they left everything, service that is perfect freedom. And he meets a people who ask for the reconciliation, but no thank you to the service. And let's not say, well, um, that was fine for Simon, uh, but what service does he want from me? This is programmatic, this is typical. Catch people however you like, but catching people will do to be going on with as service. And so what I want to do, I'm going to finish. Uh, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you, it can be an up. Uh, can be a scale running vertically, can be a scale running horizontally, whichever. But at one end of the scale, just put the word burden. And at the other end of the scale, put the word delight. And honestly, when no one can see what you're thinking, you place on that scale where catching people sits for you. And as you feel able, uh, tell someone where that has been. Maybe it'll be someone near and dear to you over lunch, maybe not. But open up a conversation as to why it may well seem less to you like marvellous invitation and more like obligation. But we do not remain there. We look upwards to be forgiven. And we're going to join in a confession now, which will appear on the screen. I invite you to join in it with me. Most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. In your mercy, forgive and restore us, so that we may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you, our God. Amen. May the God of love and power forgive you and free you from your sins, heal and strengthen you by his Spirit, and raise you to new life in the following of Christ our Lord. Amen.